Hi, I'm Conrad Marshall, and from the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, this is Good Weekend Talks, a magazine for your ears in which we take a deep dive into the definitive stories of the day. Every week you can download new episodes in which top journalists from across our newsrooms host conversations with the people capturing the imagination of Australia right now. This week, we speak with Socceroos coach Graham Arnold, who opens up on his tough love childhood, more tough, less love, the way he handles former players and soccer fans, sorry, football fans, and the penalty kick that sent his side into the World Cup in Qatar, which begins in under a fortnight. And hosting this conversation with our national coach about everything from the tyranny of distance to Ted Lasso is Sydney Morning Herald chief sports writer Andrew Webster. Thanks, Conrad, and thank you for joining us, Graham Arnold. Great to be here. Arnie, take us back to June this year, Socceroos v Peru in Doha. Talk us about probably the greatest moment of your life. Yeah, look, it seems a bit uh, four months later and uh, only a couple of weeks uh, before we go away to the World Cup. It it still seems a little bit surreal how it really uh, panned out in the end. On the performance side of things, I think the boys did exceptionally well. Uh, They stuck to the game plan well. There was a lot of energy and uh, sometimes, uh, you know, as 11 individuals, we, we may not have been as good technically and and that is Peru, but they really gelled together that night, fought for each other, worked hard for each other and uh, really put in a great team performance. How is your emotions on the sideline? You need a result, you need a goal to progress through to the World Cup finals. When it gets to the end of normal time and then as extra time's going, how are the emotions going through you at that, that point in time? Yeah, look, I have to say that as strange as it sounds, it was probably nearly the, the most relaxed I, w- I could be. Of course, it was a stressful moment, but the brain was clear, the mind was clear, and you know I think that uh, we were still making good decisions. Where sometimes with that type of emotion and pressure, you can make uh, crazy decisions uh, as a coach. But you know I think it was just more a, a relief, Andrew. You know, like you want to do it for the nation, and especially being Australian myself, and and the pride of the nation. It was just uh, more relief for the for the game of football in this country, for the fans to give them something to you know, really cheer about and gel the country back together again and be there for the World Cup. When you replaced Matt Ryan with Andrew Redmayne with a minute of extra time to go, you broke the internet, you broke Twitter, <laughs> like you tend to oh, do, do Arnie, you like that. <laughs> yeah, I love it. And Redmayne makes the save. It's a save that means the world to Australia. What was the thinking of choosing the grey wiggle, as we like to call it, mm. for that penalty shootout that you obviously knew must have been coming? Yeah, look, and uh, planning is a key. Preparation is a key. And uh, unless you have those type of uh, moments planned, plan A, B, C and D, I always have for every game, then uh, this was E. <laughs> that um, <laughs> if you don't plan for that, well, then you're not going to probably do those type of things. And, uh, you know, I've known Matty Ryan for many, many years, you know, I've, I've worked with him at Central Coast Mariners when he was 18 at 2010. Matty is a top class goalkeeper and it was nothing to do with, you know, his inability to do anything. It was just more around uh, getting into the brains of the Peruvians and, uh, you know, them asking the question in a way of, well, why would he do that? Why would they change that goalkeeper? And especially someone like Matty Ryan and and to bring in uh, Redders and, and to bring him on. And it's, it's, it's quite simple, really. It's a uh, Maddie is 181 centimetres, Andrew Redmayne's 195. 
Andrew's reach is much longer than Maddie's, you know. So therefore, the the penalty takers have to get closer to the the post uh, to to be able to score past Redders in a penalty shootout, and, uh, and that's all it was. It's a save that means the World Cup for Australia. Joy unbridled for Graham Arnold and Rene Mullenstein for his players. But it was a risk, though, wasn't it? I, I spoke to your good friend Glenn Holloway. <laughs> Uh, the, a great, the great man that he is um, for this piece, and he said that you told, told him I was one kick away from being the most hated man <laughs> in the country. <laughs> well, it was uh, probably you know everyone has moments in life uh, where it's a sliding door moment, you know, in many different ways, and uh, that really was. You know, if if that uh, didn't happen, probably chased out of this country, and probably everywhere I go, people would be looking at me as a, as a failure. But I just felt that. If I didn't make that substitution, that uh, it was going to be, it was either make the substitution, sorry, and have a chance of winning, or don't make it, and losing. <laughs> what did you do around that around the shootout? You you, you weren't no. watching, were you? I, I watched the first one, right, and that was Martin Boyle, and he missed. And I just said, I basically <laughs> said to Renee Molenstein, "It's all yours, buddy." <laughs> and I just went and sat. He's down. your assistant coach, yeah, yeah, assistant. And I just went and sort of. Sat down and uh, uh, watched the reaction of the players and staff that were all in a line. So I didn't see the penalty shootout till I got home, mm-hmm. and I watched it on YouTube and watched those reactions. But I could see which penalty taker was going to go up because I could see the halfway line, the kickoff spot, and uh, and could see theirs as well, obviously. And uh, as I said, I could just see the reaction of the players that. Uh, what was going on. For me, that moment just summed up, look, I've been covering sport for a long time now, but the madness and the absurdity and the beauty of sport, like your whole career was going to be defined by that one penalty. Yeah. You know, your, your and you know, the Socceroos' fortunes were determined by that one penalty. So those players was going to be determined by that one penalty. So mm. what was the sense of relief when it actually happened? Well, first... You don't think about those type of things in those moments. Mm. You know, I'm doing it for the players. And, and I want the players to go to the World Cup and I want the nation to go to the World Cup. So I've been given the responsibility to make that happen. But it was, as I said, it was, you know, a feeling of relief when, when it was over because uh, it was a hard campaign, mate. It was during COVID, during a pandemic. People like to forget about that. I had to use 45 players to get through, you know, the, the, the campaign. We played 16 out of 20 games away from home. It was difficult and, and there was a, a lot of pressure put on the players by clubs that they were at that the clubs didn't want them to come and play for Australia with the travelling during COVID and all those type of things. So it was a, a very di- a difficult campaign and uh, at the end I was just really happy for them, for the players and their co- commitment and their support. People underestimate just how tough that period was for Australia, one, because of our location, two, because of our strict uh, quarantine rules. So, as you said, all but four of those qualifiers had to be overseas. Mm. But that meant that you had to be overseas for mm. how long was it, seven months? Or seven months, yeah. Away from your family and, mm. and, 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 your, and your friends who you're very close to. What was that like, living in a suitcase and being away and having to do all the quarantining and the isolation? At, did at any point you go, is this worth it? Well, on a number of times. You know, it's uh, you're living out of a suitcase, as you said. I was uh, I was stuck away in Dubai. Can't complain too much because the place that I was staying, they gave me like a grass area that went onto a beach, and uh, because we stay there, so you're slumming it basically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but there was no one there. 
Yeah. You know, they, they were in lockdown as well in, in Dubai and there was probably 20 people there and, and, uh, and they were workers of the hotel. So, you know, because of my relationship with the, uh, the owner there, uh, the guy who looks after the place, that they let me stay there because, you know, I, I, had, I, I went to John Barillaro well before uh, in March, uh, the year, uh, year after, in 2021, uh, I think it was. Yeah, 2021. And I took him out my program. And I just said to him, how's this going to work? Can you, are you going to help us play games here in Australia or do I need to resign? And he said, you know, in, in a way, well, we don't want you to resign. What do you mean? And I showed him how much I'd have to quarantine. I would have had to quarantine 95 days in a quarantine hotel if I did it the government's way and the organisation's way of coming and going for the, during those FIFA windows. And I asked him clearly, can we play here in Australia? And uh, I had to explain why and how. It was because the players get here Tuesday night, we play Thursday. Are you going to allow that? And he was great in the way that he just said, no, that's not happening. And that's why we had to play all of our games away from home. And I really only had one choice, one solution. That was either stay away and be away from everybody and work from over there or resign. How tough was it being away from your, your family? Mate, it was it was hard. It was really hard mentally. It mm. was it was hard because uh, you know you're on your own, and you know when you're on your own, and you're going through the pressure that we're going through. And I did the Olympic team as well in Tokyo, and that was, you know, I don't have one good memory of the Olympics, other than we us beating Argentina and, and us training and playing together. But because it wasn't like an Olympics, we were stuck in a hotel in lockdown and, and we couldn't do anything. And there was no buzz to the Olympics, which normally there always is. And being away and locked in rooms and, and being away from the family, you just overthink. You know, you sit there looking at the walls and you're thinking, you know, all you can think about is, oh, we have to win the next game, we have to win the next game. Or we have to, you know, and, and the planning side of it was so difficult. And then... You know, players pulling out, you know, all the time. And, and and I'll be honest, it was that was probably the most tiring part of it was because normally you select a squad to play for the play for the Socceroos or your nation, and the players just turn up. You don't have to talk to clubs. You don't have to talk to the players. You select them, and they come. This time, it was I had to ring every player, basically. How do you feel? How does your wife feel about you coming away? How do you feel about going back to Australia for Australian-based players and going into quarantine for 14 days and then going home and all this stuff? And if a player was negative and said, oh, honey, I can't do that, well, I left him out with no grudges mm. because I'd, you had to understand it's, it's difficult for everyone. Mm. But uh, the, 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 the squad that you selected nine times out of ten got changed by five or six players pulling out with COVID or all their clubs putting pressure on them. Or family. Or you getting COVID? Oh, me getting COVID, yeah. I had uh, COVID twice with absolutely zero symptoms. It was funny, the other day I was looking back, I took a video of myself uh, watching the Vietnam game when I was <laughs> locked in the no, hotel. Was <laughs> coaching, coaching, coaching from the... From the <laughs> no, I wasn't coaching, I was a fan. You were literally an armchair coach, yeah, I love yeah. it. <laughs> and uh, no, absolutely no symptoms. I was gobsmacked. And uh, I hate to say it like this, but... I got my booster and I travelled three days later down to Melbourne. I tested positive with no symptoms. So <laughs> you make up your own choice on that. Okay, so let's – and I know you like to deflect this question, but there was plenty of criticism and heat um, mm. around you and the side, but particularly 
yourself, well, when the Socceroos win the penalty shootout 5-4, is there a small bit of you that feels vindicated by the decisions that you made? Yeah, but uh, I don't listen to those people because they're the uneducated. Mm. You know, there's people that uh, have never experienced being in the national team, never experienced the travel the boys have to do to play, and then with time differences and that and what it can do, but... You know, I, I don't listen. It's, if, if you're going to listen to those type of people, you've got to give it away. Mm. And I don't do social media at all and uh, never have, and it doesn't bother me at all. But sometimes you just get a little bit disappointed when it's ex-players that do understand the the travel and, and the time differences and how hard it is that they come out and say some s- silly things, but sometimes they need headlines as well for their jobs. After the match, you were interviewed on the field, and the thing that really resonated for me, and the whole reason why I sort of wanted to pursue this as a good weekend piece, you, you thanked your older brother, Colin, mm. who I interviewed for the good weekend piece, and he, he was actually even emotional remembering you thanking him, and he never mm. knew that he, he'd been such a support for you. Why did you feel like in that moment you had to, to thank your brother? Oh, to show people that I'm not such a bad bloke, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh but of course, he's just always been there, you know, when I lost my mum and dad at a young age and uh, <clears throat> my mum never saw me play for Australia, you know, and obviously none of the grandkids and uh, my dad died when I was 25 and, um, but my brother's been there all the way through it and he, I know he doesn't feel like he's a support but it's, you know, it's the times where you just, I pick up the phone and just, g'day Cole, how are you? Yeah, good, how are you? And we start talking. Hmm. And he's got this knowledge in the background, and he's never coached, and, and that of things that you say to yourself, how do you, like, how do you know that? But he's just an older brother that knows a lot of what I've been through. And in, and probably the biggest thing, Webby, he's a great listener. He, he listens uh, to me carry on, and he's always there to support. Like, through the bad times, everyone's great when you're winning. Like, when you win, like after we beat Peru, I had something like 750 text messages from people I haven't spoken to in ages and that. But then when you lose, that's when you find out who your best mates are and who's special in your life. And and he's always one of the first ones <clears throat> and always has been when we lose that I get a text message or a phone call. How are you? Don't worry about it. You know, move on. And those type of things. And who cares what people think? You do everyone proud and all that. And you do your family proud. And that's the most important thing. When we sat down the first time for uh, our first interview for this piece, it really stood out for me, Arnie, that you know you talked about your upbringing, which is pretty tough, um, and you, particularly your, your, the death of your mother from from cancer when you were mm. twenty, and just how tough your dad was on you throughout your, your life and career. And to me, you said in a really matter matter of fact way, you're really open and honest, but you were you were very calm when you did it. When you talked about qualifying for the World Cup, that's when you couldn't get your words out. That's when yeah. you were most emotional. Mm. Can you tell me, is that because you put all the things that happened when you were a kid, you've managed to put have closure on that? Mm. Yeah, and I know this sounds terrible, but I've probably only ever been to the cemetery, the grave, only once or twice because I can't do it. You know, so and I know it's been hard all the way through, but... You know, not a closure at all. I look up, and when I need their help, I know they're always there. You know, as I said with my dad, yes, he was extremely hard. My upbringing, 
it, it was tough, but it wasn't like we didn't have any. We lived obviously in a garage, out of a garage basically, at my nan's place. And that makes the family quite tight because there's no room. You know, he was hard on me because I look at it now and there was a method to his madness in those days. That's how f- fathers were. And I've read and heard the Elena Dokic type uh, doco around her father and and even Andre Agassi's and, and those type. And I think my dad was no no different. He saw that I had a talent. Uh, he saw that I, I, I had something that I could achieve in my life. And he drove me really hard at a young age to be tough and not to worry about people and it's all about you and making sure that uh, I did everything to to give myself a chance to be successful. So there were times I hated him. <laughs> when I say that, you know, when I was seven, eight years of age and if we lost a game and I didn't play well, seven or eight, mm. he'd drive off two minutes and he was my coach. Yeah. He'd drive off two minutes from the end of the game and I'd have to walk home in those days and, and things like that. And, he, and it used to really upset my mum at the younger age but that's how he was and that's uh, you know as I said I look back at those that upbringing and that's probably why I can deal with all these type of situations today well I asked you in one of our interviews I said so do you in an odd way do you get your resilience from your father and you're very mm. firm and said no I get it from yeah, my mother mum, yeah yeah no my mum <clears throat> you know she had a breast uh, she had a uh, a lump on her breast for years and she ignored it because she had to go to work to get money just for us um, to eat. And my dad was a taxi driver and, you know, he would, uh, he was a heavy drinker, he was an alcoholic and um, he spent most of his money on alcohol and, and cigarettes. <clears throat> but my mum, she knew she had that lump in her breast, but she did nothing about it. And in those days, breast cancer was really unknown. Mm. And, uh, and she was one of the first ones I'd ever heard that got breast cancer by the time she did something about it it had gone right through right through her body and onto her spine and and uh and yeah pretty much that was it you say that you um you partied a fair bit and and had a bit of a drink yourself to get through a bad period but can you tell us what she said to you on her deathbed just before she died yeah she uh, Like, I can't, it's not word for word, but it's close. But she basically said to me, she grabbed my hand and it was two days before she died. And uh, she hadn't really woken up for a bit of time. And she grabbed my hand and I was sitting there and she said to me, she said, you know, she said, you've got a great opportunity in life. You've got great skills and, and you've got great talent. Don't be a bum like your mates. Because she knew <clears throat> I was going out all the time. She knew that. I was partying and, and drinking, getting drunk all the time, and I'd given I'd given football away and cricket, and I was a good cricketer as well. I'd given them away for a year, and I was an apprentice builder, and uh, and she said, no, "Give up that and focus on what you're good at." And uh, three three years later, I played for the Socceroos because that was, and then I gave up alcohol. I gave up partying I, I stopped going out with me mates every every night and I still went out one night a Just week limited two to, nights to, a to week. four nights a week good <laughs> yeah. good it's great self-control <laughs> exactly 
But so you played 453 senior games, including uh, many games in Holland and Belgium, 56 for the Socceroos. You must be pretty proud of your career. You, you said to me mm. you were a, you were a physical player mm. with I have to say a beautiful big was it was that a <laughs> perm? was that a perm? <laughs> no, it looks like it today though. <laughs> and, and, and and a dirty moustache. Yeah, you're very much an iconic player. Graham Arnold tried to manufacture something here. Is Lass in trouble? Tell us what you loved about playing. Oh, look, I've, I felt like uh, I wasn't at the time. I, I felt like I wasn't really one of the better players, but I was a hard worker. Mm. And I used to put my body on the line if, if I had to. And I know some coaches like that way. And probably what opened, opened my eyes more and gave me a lot more self-belief and, and also more belief in myself again was when I got, uh, you know, I got... Uh, this guy called me from Rota JC in Holland and in those days there was no the borders were closed and a Belgian player was a, a foreign player in Holland and I, I went to Rota JC which was a, a top four team in Holland and playing against players that I watched in the on the 1990 World Cup and had played against with a national team and uh, going across there and uh, that made me feel like oh well, I must be good enough you know because here in Australia at the time the old NSL you know you're only playing for played 24 games in the whole season. The other six months is you're working and, you know, pre-season in those days it was part-time and and you question yourself. Mm. And I think that's, uh, as that built over the years and, you know, I was one of the first players to go away with Slater, Farina, Krensovic and Mitchell, that, that gave a lot of the younger Australian players that pathway through as well. Mm. And uh, with the likes of Kuehl and Viduka and that, that... Uh, it gave them that pathway to belief as well. What about coaching? You said to me you did it upside down. Yeah. So you got into it through Northern Spirit as a player coach, correct? Yeah. Then as an assistant coach to Frank Farina and and then finally under Gus Hiddink in Mm. 2005. Tell us about what Gus Hiddink was like to work alongside and the influence he's had on you. Mate, I don't know how to... I don't know if we've got another couple of hours. It's... (laughs) uh, What I learned in that 10 months working with Gus was... uh, irreplaceable and when I say I did my career back in the front I did it completely back in the front like straight from playing to a player coach and I didn't coach I I played and led by example and you know I didn't plan didn't do anything right really and uh, it was quite a bit of a failure and then uh, to go straight from that to without really coaching into being an assistant coach to Frankie was quite surreal and I wasn't really ready for it but then when Hus came in, he relayed a, a lot of responsibility on me because he was coaching PSV at the same time and he was showing me ways and, and a lot of it was around pre-planning, preparation, planning and the hard work you have to do off the field with obviously watching games and watching players and doing all that where pretty much that wasn't like that before. But he was uh, he's an amazing person and, uh, you know, I only had him out here a couple of weeks ago and had a great time with him but... Uh, when people talk about why did I make that substitution with Andrew Redmayne, Hus was going to do it in 2005 against Uruguay. And that stuck in the back of my brain for all these years. And it was the same conversation that uh, I had with him that you've just said uh, to me. And it was, why would you do that, boss? Like, Schwartz is a great goalkeeper. Mm. And Schwartz ended up saving the, uh, the penalty than Johnny scoring to get us through. But it was more about the mental aspect of what it does to the opposition and the questioning in their brains when they're stepping up and asking why. 
and he was going to do it. He's going to bring Jocko Kalach on in the 118th, 19th minute. And the only reason it didn't happen was because Brett Emerton went down with cramps and uh, we, we couldn't do it. But otherwise, you know, that type of thing was uh, relayed then. I got to meet Gauz and interview him for the piece and spend some time around the both of you um, around that friendly against New Zealand in Brisbane in September. I could tell, Arnie, both of you have a pretty close bond. Yeah. And he seemed like a lot of fun. He's brilliant. You know what I loved about <laughs> meeting him? Because, like, you get to meet in this job a lot of different people and you have this high opinion of them and you, you're constantly having, you know, your heart broken because you see what they're really like. Yeah. But when meeting Hitting, my estimations of him went doubled because yeah. he was such a, yeah. such a, a just a, a gentle but uh, wise and fun yeah. character to be around. And you go, well, this is the bloke who used to coach... Yeah. Real Madrid and Chelsea and all these, you know, he's a, a giant thing, of the game. Yeah, the thing about it is that he's just such a good man. Mm. He's got, the, like, the best heart. You know, he's just so kind. And I've had this relationship with him since pretty much, obviously, since 2005 or six. He was, you know, sent me a, a great text after the Peru game. He's always checking in. On, and he's like my dad in a, in a lot of ways. And his advice is always so good, but... You know, there's a part that people just miss with him uh, and, you know, because he's hard. He is hard. Mm. But you've got to be hard to be a coach and sometimes you you do things and say things that maybe don't come out the right way. But he's man management, you know. Wherever he's coached, the players love him. And that's something I learned off him and Pim Verbeek was who said, you always know if the players love you or, or the players are supporting you is when one of the biggest things is if you walked into a bar and the players are there having a beer... And if they turn around and they look at you, or if they get up and walk out, they don't respect you or they're scared of you. But if they stay there and can finish the beer and say, hey, Arnie, how are you? And they have a bit of a laugh, he said, then you know they're, they're on your side. Wow. And uh, his, his attention to detail is amazing. And even that camp up in Brisbane in New Zealand, he just sits, always sits with his back to the wall right in the corner so he can see everything. And then just, you know, who's that? Who's that one with the goat's beard over there? With the beard over there. Tell him, oh, that's Mitchell Jew. I like him. I like him. I said, you haven't seen him play. Yeah, but I like his energy. That's and unbelievable. Unbelievable. And from decades of, of experience. Yeah, yeah. Man management. Yeah, I exactly. liked when, during our very, very long uh, interview the first time <laughs> around, you put me on a Ted Lasso. Yeah. <laughs> and I hadn't seen it, so I went and watched it. And that is the, that is the ultimate... I know it's a comedy series, but that shows you the importance of it's the tactics are secondary. It's yeah. all about people. Well, if you don't get if the person, if you don't get the person right mentally, and if you don't treat the person right these days, mm. then you can have the best tactics in the world. Mm. They're not going to do it. Tell us about this World Cup. You have got a pool which includes uh, France, Tunisia, and Denmark. Mm. Easy. Oh, <laughs> look, uh, exactly. But you're you're one of thirty two teams. At a World Cup, so it's, they're all all the opposition are going to be strong. I'm excited by it because I, I truly believe we've we've grown as a, as a group over over the last four years. And uh, you know, I did the Olympic team with uh, d you know at the same time to help develop some kids and bring them through, and they're all doing well. We just removed those names. We're playing against a, a, a navy blue shirt on the first game, mm. you know, and the second game a red shirt, and the third game a white or a red shirt, and you know, it's uh, it's about 11 v 11, and it's about winning those individual battles. And are we technically as good as those three teams? Probably not. Tactically, well, that's my job to get that right. Physically, we've got to be at our best. 
But mentally, that's the biggest thing. It's when you walk on that pitch, you have a clear brain and you go out there and show the, show the world what you're made of. This is your opportunity. What's a satisfactory result for us? Mate. You don't put, you're not putting games and matches and no, goals look, on, I, uh, on, on what you expect? No, look, the Socceroos have won two games ever at a World Cup. One in 2006 with Hus against Japan and uh, one with Pim Verbeek in a dead rubber game against Serbia. I just want to go there and uh, enjoy it, first and foremost, but secondly, put a, put a smile on the Australian fans' faces and, and, and help and for the good of the game back here in Australia because the, the, the time slots that the people will be watching them back here are fantastic, you know, mm. with the time diff. You know, their first, first game against France, 10 p.m., Kickoff time uh, in Qatar, which is about 6 a.m. in the morning here, so a lot of people get up. But the second one, Tunisia, is one o'clock kickoff. That's seven or eight o'clock at night. Pubs will be full here. Okay. <laughs> <And> <laughs> that everyone, doesn't sound too bad. No, every, and there's nothing else on at that stage except, and obviously, I believe anyway that uh, the two teams that unite the nation is the Socceroos and the Matildas mm. because all AFL fans have got this bit of football in them. And rugby fans and rugby league fans and cricket fans, they all become football fans once once every four years. It's always the sport that most of us grow up playing. Yeah. You know, so there's always an affinity there. Yeah. But, Arnie, I always I found this while working on the piece, like that moment in 2005 with John Aloisi's goal and, mm. and qualifying in 06, which was such a great breakthrough moment for the code. And it was the first time in 32 years that, mm. that Australia were going to the World Cup finals. Yeah. But it sent this really tricky benchmark for all the coaches that have followed. I mean, you've got a, you got, yeah. we've got a, we, we live in a really remote part of the world in terms of football, um, and it's always a, it's a, it's a tough route that we usually have to tread. You more than anyone mm. this year, so it's an expectation we've Australian yeah, coaches have to live up to. Yeah, but Australia fans have all these unrealistic high expectations. You know, my my contract and my KPIs from the organisation was just to qualify for the World Cup because they get $15 million, you know. So, yes, now we've qualified. For me, it's it's about going there and, and, and you know, every individual go there and, and give it their best shot. But 32 years, as you said, we didn't qualify. Hmm. And in 2005-06, we qualified in Oceania, through Oceania and obviously through South America. So we were able to play Japan or an Asian nation. These days we can't. Hmm because we're part of Asia. So, you know, on that side of it, if you look at uh, Hus's um, reign compared to Pim Verbeek's, Hus got four points, win against Japan, 3-1, lost against Brazil, 2-0, and then drew with Croatia, 2-all. Four points. Goal difference was a big thing. Under Pim, we got smashed first game, 4-0 against Germany, drew 1-1 against Ghana, and then we beat Serbia 2-1. We had the same points, but two goal, uh, but our goal difference was worse. So that's also something that's important. After it's all said and done, what's next for Graham Arnold? Well, my contract's finished, Webby, the day after the last game at the World Cup. And uh, so my, fo- my full focus is at this moment is just going to the World Cup and enjoying it. But no doubt after the World Cup, I'm going to go away, have four or five weeks break and see what happens. Coach for life? Yeah, I love coaching, mate. I love helping, helping the the boys, helping the kids, and uh, helping them fulfil their dreams and their goals in life. And uh, you know, I said this many years ago to the Central Coast Mariners boys in 2010, and I say it still today: is that I'll judge my career on how many millionaires I've made, 
in, in terms of players. And, uh, you know, yes, trophies and yes, all that's good, but they just get dust on them at home. I'd rather see, I'd rather see kids and, you know, with smiles on their faces and, and living happy lives. That's, that's the most important thing for me. Graham Arnold, thanks for your time. Good luck in Qatar. Thanks, Webby. Good Weekend Talks is brought to you by the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Subscriptions power our newsrooms. To support independent journalism, search subscribe Sydney Morning Herald or The Age. If you'd like to know more about Graham Arnold, there's a link to Andrew's story in the podcast show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe, rate and comment wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Good Weekend Talks is produced by Julia Carcatzel. Technical assistance from Margaret Gordon, editing from Conrad Marshall, Tom McKendrick is head of audio, and Katrina Strickland is the editor of Good Weekend.